live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injections of rumor and innuendo all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight featured commentary by marketing entrepreneur Derek Addis, high school teacher from Colorado, Kyle Daniels, Conservative commentator Nate Hockman joins us from Oregon. And in studio with me is Eric Cole, also a marketing specialist and also a very active libertarian and has been a frequent guest on this program, as has Derek Addis. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, right at the top, we're really not going to spend too much time tonight talking about the president's address to the nation or uh, uh, Senator Scott's response to it or all the trillions of dollars that uh, they have proposed to change society, because there will be plenty of time to talk about it. It isn't going to be it isn't going to be voted on immediately, but we'll be talking about that in the in the weeks ahead. But tonight, because we have sort of a different panel, I've got two people in studio who are good friends, and I've got two people on the uh, on the line out there in Zoom land uh, who I don't know or I've met just casually, and so we'll ha- engage in conversation. And we've got a I'm going to begin with one of the things we're going to talk about is a critical race theory, uh, wokeness. Uh, cancer culture, uh, uh, cancel culture. And these are the things we're going to be talking about. And I want to start with uh, just asking for sort of a, of a historical look at the, the concept of the critical race theory. As I understand it, it started, you know, in the late 60s uh, on Harvard, Harvard campus, and then it grew from there. So, Eric, tell me more what you know about it and how does something that starts obviously so small has now become a dominant factor in uh, American society, at least at the academic levels. So I'm going to reserve a, a lot of the explanation of where it came from for our guest, Nick Hockman, because okay. a publication that uh, I have something to do with in my day job at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty, our quarterly magazine, Religion and Liberty, mm-hmm. he co-authored a piece on critical race theory for it. So um, perfect conversation to include Nate. Then let's let's go out to let's Oregon go straight right to Nathan. Now. Let's see if uh, Nate's awake and... Uh... Nate, welcome to Beyond the Beltway, and uh, you've got a question thrown by a guest already. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, thanks, Bruce. Uh, and uh, Eric's being too kind. I'm, I'm no expert, certainly, but I, I have written and studied uh, critical race theory a little bit. Um, and to the extent that I have, uh, Bruce, you're right. I think that the the sort of precursor to what we understand as critical race theory today started happening in the 1960s on college campuses. But what we really think of as, as critical race theory in terms of the political theory uh, and the cultural theory um, that is in all of our major institutions today, really started getting formed in the 1980s. Uh, and you had, you know, theorists like Kimberly Crenshaw and a lot of other people that most people haven't heard of outside of uh, a- academic circles mm-hmm. uh, who, are, who are really formulating this theory and trying to deconstruct, uh, you know, all of our cultural and political institutions and to reveal ostensibly the uh, hidden structures of oppression that are concealed within all of our institutions and systems. Um, we're very used to hearing this language today. We hear it everywhere. Um, you know, every major corporation releases statements using this language. Obviously, the Democratic Party is entirely taken with it. Our education system is entirely taken uh, with it from kindergarten straight through to graduate school. Um, but it, it, it began as a sort of small group of pretty insular academics and intellectuals who were f- trying to basically push back against traditional notion, American a- notions like colorblindness uh, and, and equality under the law and all these other things that most Americans take for granted. I and, go, and we're arguing me, that those things are I, I want to so. go to Kyle uh, Daniels, who joins us. He joins us from Colorado. He is a high school 
history teacher. So at, at what point did the critical race theory uh, enter your, uh, you know, way of life? Was it back in college? And if so, uh, how was it introduced and how did you react to it? And uh, what are you doing about it now in the classrooms in Colorado? Uh, thank you, Bruce. Uh, just a quick point of clarification. I actually am teaching in Utah now, I'm sorry. but that's I'm okay, sorry. Uh, which is also interesting considering what happened yesterday with Mitt Romney, which maybe we can get to later. Right. But uh, going to your question about critical race theory, introduced to me, yeah, definitely by college. Didn't hear anything about it. Uh, in high school, we had a topic about it in a speech and debate class I had, but we really didn't jump into it. Uh, didn't really see what it was or research into it until college. And so it was introduced at college. My reaction to it, um, I was raised in Idaho, a very different uh, demographic than what I was in when I went to college. And, mm -hmm. and so it really opened my eyes. I did spend some time abroad and uh, start to see where my own personal upbringing was different. And I think that there, there are definitely things there to look into. I do not buy it as a whole. But I do think that it, it brings about the dialogue, a dialogue that should be had. Derek, you were probably the most uh, liberal guest we have on the program this evening. What what does it mean to you? And are you a big supporter of it or do you have reservations? Yeah, well, um, you know, my minimal research into the topic um, you know, when I was younger, I kind of going through school, I grew up in Texas. Uh, well, school time was in Texas, summertime in Chicago. And I realized that a lot of what I was being taught as far as Texas history was through a, a lens that wasn't my lens or the lens of what people said were my people. Right. So, you know, here we are talking about critical race theory, which is kind of along the same lines or the exact same lines of that, which is. You know, uh, Nate spoke about traditional American values, and it's like, well, who got to define what traditional American values are? Like, I, as an American, never really felt like the values or the things that I was taught or told as a child were wholly in line with the true history of my existence in this land. And so, you know, to Kyle's point about um, creating a discussion and bringing about a new discussion, you know, I... Uh, I think that's really important to do, you know, as we evolve as a people here, um, in, you know, in America. So, what were, what were the things that uh, you were taught and you mm -hmm. read about that you didn't think spoke to you or the values that you had sure. growing up? Yeah. So, Texas, by the way, we should mention. I normally yeah. don't ask. You're Palestinian, correct? Y yeah. So my my father is Palestinian okay. and my mother is Tejana. So you know we're Mexican Americans from okay. Texas, right? right? So you know if you ask someone who's Mexican from Mexico, they'll say Texas is Mexico, right? Okay. Because there was you know the war. Everyone knows about sure. the Alamo, and I think that was one of the things that really stood out to me the most was how you know glamorized, glorified, and sensationalized the story of the Alamo is, right? But it's always told from the white settler's perspective, and then obviously the defeat of Santa Ana and in Houston and all that stuff, right? Well, it's never told from the perspective of the native people who lived in those lands, which were the Mexicans. And so I think that's where, you know, to answer your question, that's that's where I didn't feel represented in what I was being taught in, in school. Is that a representation that you think uh, should be included or should have been included, Nate? Well, uh, Derek's certainly right uh, that there, the, the way that we've sort of traditionally taught American history in, in say, our public schools uh, it, you know, is a simplistic view of American history to be charitable, uh, and that we do leave out important um, uh, perspectives from a lot of different folks. And insofar as there is a push right now to include the perspectives of a, a wider group of Americans and include those people in our broader sense of American history, I think that's to the good. The problem is that's not really what critical race theory is actually pushing for. Uh, you know, Derek 
said that uh, who gets to define traditional American values uh, like colorblindness and equality. But those mm-hmm. things that we're talking about, colorblindness and equality under the law, those actually have pretty solid concrete definitions that everyone agrees on. And critical race theory and the critical race theorists are attacking the very basic notions of things like equality under the law mm-hmm. or colorblind policy. And they're pushing for race-based policies in a variety of different areas and saying that equality under the law needs to be abandoned uh, in favor of group preferences. Uh, so they're explicitly saying that these things that everyone more or less agrees what they mean uh, it's more about a disagreement of whether or not they're a good thing. And for the most part, uh, traditionally, Americans have thought that they were a good thing that should be strived for. Okay, we've got, a, we've got a pause have, date. We're going to a break back shortly from Chicago. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back in Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us. Evanston is just outside Chicago, so when I say Chicago or Evanston, it to to me and many people listening to the country, it's it's uh, very very close. It borders Chicago. Uh, Eric, you wanted to speak to something uh, during the break. Well, yeah. So you said we weren't going to talk about the president's speech and about uh, Tim Scott's response, but uh, Tim Scott actually addressed this issue within his response and a passage that I thought was particularly powerful. When America comes together, we've made tremendous progress, but powerful forces want to pull us apart. A hundred years ago, kids in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was the most important characteristic. And if they looked a certain way, they were inferior. Today, kids are, get, are again being taught that the color of their skin defines them, and if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. From colleges to corporations to our culture, people are making money and gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all, by doubling down on the divisions we've worked so hard to heal. I, I think we also see issues of this, examples of this bubbling up. New York City is an interesting one, so you have the selective high schools in New York City. Mm-hmm. Stuyvesant is an example of that. Very prominent. They have had a test system since 1971, I believe, for admission to these schools. And the problem from the point of view of people who believe in critical race theory is that the portion of people who get into the schools is not representative of the population at large. But you have one minority, Asians, um, who are overrepresented in all of that. So it is what the test is supposed to be, which is to find people who are capable from all backgrounds and pull them into these selective enrollment schools. But this is a problem we're now to believe because it doesn't represent that kind of the the representation uh, reflection of how, what society breaks down as this strikes me as fundamentally perverse the idea that people tested would somehow represent exactly what the racial makeup of the country is um so I, I think this is the kind of thing we're going to see more and more around the country new york city is a leader in this sense on on the cutting edge of this we'll see where else it bubbles up 
as this uh, grew in academia, uh, it obviously got onto the broader culture. So how did it make it, how did this critical race theory and wokeness, which we'll talk about a little bit later on, uh, how did it make it to corporate America so that corporate America responds in such a knee-jerk way to any uh, any challenge uh, that pops up in the marketplace? Nate? Well, you have a generation of uh, English and uh, critical race and gender theory majors at elite universities becoming HR consultants for Fortune 500 companies. Uh, and you've seen the total transformation of corporate America and big business to reflect that. Um, the, the left is, you should give, we should give credit where it's due. The left is very, very good at uh, the, the so-called march through the institutions. They have taken over all of our major institutions now with this way of thinking. And you see that reflected in the way that big business talks and acts. They are uh, entirely beholden to the, to the wishes of, of the activist left-wingers who uh, have taken over uh, the corporate boardrooms and the HR departments in all of these major companies. So Republicans and conservatives were asleep at the switch. Absolutely. Yeah, we were not paying attention or insofar as we were paying attention, we were just dismissing it as crazy college kids doing crazy college stuff that they'll, they'll grow out mm-hmm. of eventually. And they never grew out of it. How do, uh, Kyle, uh, how do your students react in the classroom? How do, c- can you tell whether or not critical race theory is something that's sinking into them? And are they asking intelligent questions about it? Are they challenging it? Uh, how are they reacting? Well, just during this this call, a lot of things came to my mind, especially when he was talking about this the Scott's response. I, I was thinking right up to this last week, I had a student that I was thinking, how did my students even respond to the the speech in the first place? And the one that stuck out was one student stood up, uh, made the comment that was the first time that they had taken notice to politics because somebody said, "I have your back" in reference to trans people, and this individual uh, identifies as trans, uh, and that ten years ago was not going to happen in the classroom. So all these students are definitely being exposed to these kinds of cultures, at least in this, in this culture here in in Utah, that would not have happened 10 years ago. Uh, Whereas today. Yeah. Did. Derek, you spend a lot of time between here and Texas. You mentioned that you you came from Texas. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems to me that, that at the statewide level, the statewide educational level, uh, the educators in Texas would be all over to smash this down mm-hmm. and make sure that it doesn't have any uh, show the, the any daylight at all. Is that what's happening in Texas? Uh, you know, honestly, I haven't really followed uh, you know day to day what's going on, but I know that you know right now this is uh, a red team hot button issue. Uh, you know, in the past week, you know, I kind of just went over looking at different various uh, videos and, and, and teachings on critical race theory from both sides uh, of the aisle, per se. Um, and I'll be honest with you, when I looked on YouTube, it was just a lot of conservatives just screaming bloody murder and fire about, you know, you can't tell our kids these things. And so, yeah, I also found that there was a bunch of states that have um, some laws that they're trying to enact to prevent this from happening, uh, from being put into the curriculum for the students. Um, but I can tell you from personal experience that the curriculum in Texas, um, you know, isn't always geared towards what's best for the students. You know, uh, one one thing being the lack of sex education and somewhere like San Antonio having twice the national average uh, a pregnancy rate, right? So babies having babies. They have no vested interest in breaking that cycle because, you know, to talk about, uh, Nate was talking about um, corporate America being infiltrated by the left or, you know, I, I think the reality is that human capital is what is the foundation of any corporation. And so HR's job is to, you know, 
it depends on who you ask, but ideally HR's job is to do two things, to protect the company from any form of liability, but also to protect the people who work there and have to, you know. What about the people, uh, who, what about the people who invest in that company? If someone makes a decision that they're going to they're going to come out against a particular issue, or they're going to mm-hmm. uh, you know they're going to support the the movement of the All Star Game out of Atlanta, mm-hmm. I mean it seems to me that at a at a board of directors you've got people you know say you know what if we do this we're going to lose mm-hmm. some some, some uh, support mm-hmm. we may lose some support from the black community, mm-hmm. but on the other hand is there no one of those those boards saying wait a minute if we do this. We're going to lose all of our white customers. Well, here's the and, thing. And, and at what point, if mm-hmm. you're a member of the board, don't you have to go with where you're going to lose the most? Well, unfortunately, that's the the harsh reality of capitalism that has nothing to do with the stakeholders. It's all about the shareholders. So to answer your question, they'll go wherever the money's at. And I think that's where Nate's- So what's wrong, what's wrong with that? If you uh, put your money where your mouth is and you've yeah. invested in a company mm-hmm. and a company management has made a decision- mm-hmm that you may disagree with, I mean, you're going to look at the bottom line Mm -hmm. and you're going to say, okay, by opposing Mm -hmm. the all-star game in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. am I going to have, if I'm on the board of Delta Airlines, Mm -hmm. am I going to lose business travelers because I don't like the decision and I don't think a lot of business travelers like the decision uh, to shut down the all-star game in Atlanta? Yeah, I think it depends on your philosophy of either the stakeholder or the shareholder theory. And predominantly, you know, shareholder theory is what reigns supreme, which is we have to do anything and everything to ensure shareholder value either increases or stabilizes. Whereas stakeholder theory is you take into account the community, the employees, the managers, the environment around the facility that you operate. So when you make decisions based upon multiple stakeholders, you no longer are you know beholden to just making the share price go up, you make different decisions. Eric. I want to back up to something that Derek said at the beginning of the point that he was making, which is that this is, he's looking online and seeing this as a team red hot button issue. Three days ago, political playbook headline here, McConnell leans into the culture wars about Mitch McConnell uh, opposing this proposed rule in the Department of Education that would include 1619 project curriculum in schools. I find this hilarious. The idea that once Republicans or conservatives or libertarians notice that this stuff is going on and say something about it, they're leaning into the culture wars. It's not a culture war when this stuff is being promulgated by the Department of Education to be included in curriculums. It's only when Republicans notice it and of course, then pounce. So let's just be clear that if we're going to say this and term this a culture war and that McConnell is leaning into it, he's leaning into it because it was launched by the other side to include the 1619 Project curriculum, which has been assailed by historians left and right as being incredibly inaccurate and problematic and probably should get a little bit more scrutiny before we're starting to include it in educational curriculum Mm -hmm. for kids in public and private schools. Yeah, I, I I think my assertion is more so about the idea that, you know, you know, the media is sensationalized and then politicians are kind of hijacked by this idea of audience and, you know, a voting base. And so when I said that, I, I didn't mean, you know, that they're joining the culture or anything. It's literally just I feel like they're just jumping upon a train because we've been talking, right, critical race theory. What was it? Derek Bell, like in the late 60s, like you said, I believe that was his name. You know, this has been around for a number of years. It's just, you know, Trump's gone, Biden's in. What do we talk about now? And it, that's all I'm saying. Well, is it looks in, like a media cycle. In, for me, I think, I I think in fairness, we were talking about this during the Trump years as well. Trump sure. took certain actions on it. And to I think the point of what Nate was talking about is that it was on college campuses mm-hmm. in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and through the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s mm-hmm. starts to work its way into public life, sure. where we start to get 
get these arguments that equality is, is actually problematic. Equity should be that what we are pursuing. We should have this kind of equity of outcomes mm-hmm. that we can't have a colorblind society. That we need right. to recognize race and that needs to be a consideration mm-hmm. in every policy that's adopted. So it is. It has very much been coming to a fore mm-hmm. to be a part of our life, both in business and in education and in politics. And I don't think it is just oh, we're going to talk about this because mm-hmm. Trump's gone and and Biden is boring and we need mm-hmm. something to mm-hmm. kind of energize us. Kyle, sure. could some and, and, could a, could a fellow teacher uh, step up uh, in your school district and uh, uh, you know vehemently oppose the critical race theory? I mean, and would they would they lose their job? Well, well, they do stand up and talk about it. Um, they have not lost their jobs Good. as long as they follow the policy. It hasn't happened yet, and you can imagine what kind of problem that could cause even a school board, which goes even to to this whole conversation. Uh, and sensationalizing this kind, this kind of issue. I can speak just anecdotally that teachers will still at the end of our day do the best we can. And it, what Eric was saying is hit spot on about equity. Equity is being pushed so hard right now in our state standards or in standards across the nation um, and just in general. But even still then, the standard, we still have that uh, ability to, in our own classroom, create create the environment that we do but we we've do got, have that in our mind we've got a pause when we come back we'll hear more and let each of our guests introduce themselves and uh we'll take calls 1-800-723-8289 i'm bruce dumont thanks for joining us today millions of people all across america are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. 14 clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees... It doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us this evening. I'd like to take a moment now and let each of our guests introduce themselves and we'll begin with those who are in studio with me starting with Derek Addis. Derek? Uh, yeah, hi. My name is Derek Addis. Uh, I'm a OG Bernie supporter and uh, DePaul MBA. Uh, founded Philomathy Marketing here in Chicago uh, and I recently partnered with my brother and his lovely wife to uh, franchise into a learning center called Best Brains in San Antonio, Texas. So if you know any children who need some assistance with uh, with their math and English, or they want to learn coding, um, you know, uh, find me. <laughs> yeah. All right. And uh, you must be excited. Uh, even though Bernie Sanders didn't win the nomination, sounds like uh, yep. he may have won the war. It does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. Eric Cohen. Yes. 
For my day job, I'm the director of communications at the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty based out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, as I told listeners last time I was on, I uh, used to host a talk show on uh, WIND here in Chicago called Sources with Knowledge with my friend Joe Kaiser, which is no longer on the air. So for all of you program directors who are listening to this uh, conversation right now, if you're uh, looking for a compelling and uh, good radio host with a face for that medium, mm. then, well, I'm your guy and you can get in touch with us and let us know. But not on Sunday night. But not on Sunday night. I have, a, Sunday I have a previous night. appointment. Okay. <laughs> Kyle Daniels, tell us uh, where you are. And by the way, forgive me for uh, not remind, remembering that you're in Utah, not Colorado. No, it's all good. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, yeah, I'm Kyle Daniels here in Salt Lake City. Uh, I teach high school. I teach at an underprivileged school here in the, in the county. Um, very interesting demographics and just uh, the challenges that we, we face and meet. And uh, uh, this conversation tonight is very interesting to me and seeing how I can uh, apply it to my classroom. How long have you been but, a teacher? Uh, I, I've been teaching eight years now. I uh, also coach a speech and debate team. So I, I am thankful to see that people out there have great speech skills. Uh, all the people on this panel tonight are awesome. Uh, I could, I can learn a lot from you guys, obviously. But uh, yeah, speech debate, speech and debate, and then I teach uh, social studies. So is the is the quality and the attentiveness of students today is it significantly different either in a positive or negative negative way Whew. than eight years ago when you started? Oh, it, it actually ebbs and flows even more than that, even quicker, more quickly. This year, especially, it's such a hard question to answer this year because it's such a step back. Uh, because of the issues of COVID and online teaching and just the modalities that we've been put in front of us anyway. Uh, but yes, eight years ago would be def definitely a different conversation than what I'm having today in my classroom. How badly has uh, COVID-19 and uh, teaching uh, digitally, electronically, as opposed to the classroom, how badly has it hurt teaching in, in your area and in the United States? Well, the, the data is still coming in, but obviously it's it's a negative impact. Uh, I think we're all trying to do the best that we can. I think we could do better. I think there are a lot of miscommunications on various levels of, of education. Um, I don't think that th the sad part for me is I think this was a moment that our country could have said, hey, let's get our, our act together. Let's approach these issues and we can actually have a better resolution. Uh, even if it was done on a local level, if we even think not national, if you just think like, in different counties. We're seeing that across the nation. Different counties have better results than other than other districts. And are these districts actually talking to each other? And in my experience, they're not. Um, they don't want to hear where things are working better versus where they are. They're just going to come up with reasons for why it's not working in their own location. Um, but we're definitely trying. I think a, a lot of teachers are out there are burned out. I am so excited that summer's a month away and I finally get to breathe a little bit. But uh, it's it's been a struggle. I'm not going to lie. Nate, let me ask you, uh, you who have written and you're involved in writing on a lot of subjects, of which uh, wokeness and, and critical race theory uh, and cancel culture are part of that. Uh, but if you were to give sort of an instant review of education in America during this COVID period, what sort of grade would you give the overall collective uh, effort on the part of federal and local governments? I think an F. Um, I, I mean, obviously, Kyle can speak to this from personal experience, and I'm opining from, uh, you know, as a college student, uh, some personal experience, but certainly uh, 
more removed from the actual system than, than Kyle is. Uh, but if you look at the way that teachers unions have conducted themselves uh, in, in schools ac- across the country, uh, lobbying actively to keep schools closed at the uh, direct harm to the, the most marginalized and, and sort of low class underprivileged students, it's been nothing short of horrific. Uh, and you've, you've had some successes, right? I mean, Florida, for example, Ron DeSantis was very aggressive in taking on the teachers unions and they kept their schools open pretty much through the entire pandemic uh, with very uh, high success and, uh, and low uh, spread rates within the schools. So there have been success rates, but overall, it's just been really tragic to watch, uh, you know, kids get a year taken off uh, their education mm-hmm. and a lot of them are not going to get that back. Eric, Kellen. to tie this back to our previous conversation, as Nate mentioned, the teachers unions who have played an incredibly outsized role in keeping public schools closed, particularly in a lot of major cities. Uh, back, let's see, when did this happen? This was in December of uh, 2020. Uh, Chicago Teachers Union's Twitter account, to the push to reopen schools is rooted in sexism, racism, and misogyny, which is just abject nonsense. Um, it has nothing to do with that whatsoever. It, it comes from a con- place of concern for the quality of education that the students are getting from their homes, the burden that it puts on parents, especially for working parents. If you have two working parents in families, the um, even just as you know, my wife and I both working from home during the period of time where our kids' school was shut down trying to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing while we're working was difficult. I can't imagine what it is like for parents who have the burden of working outside the home in the middle of a pandemic while their kids are supposed to be on Zoom. And what we have learned about this disease is that the risk of spread and infection in schools was incredibly, incredibly low. We've known this for an extended period of time now, and yet still the teachers unions are intransigent on this and refuse to concede and continue to make ridiculous demands. Like, all students must be vaccinated before we can have schools open again. It is irresponsible, and they should be ashamed of themselves. Uh, Derek, how f- how badly have those students who are maybe traditionally or uh, culturally behind because of their backgrounds, uh, how many of them uh, perhaps have lost any sense of success in life just because of the way this has been handled by the officials and the experts? Yeah, well, um, I I want to refuse to believe that this uh, forever changes and like diminishes the entire you know learning trajectory of, of children. Um, you know, I think we do have to still put into perspective the reality that this was one year. Um, but I do under I do know that you know these are the formidable years for humans to learn and become who they are and cognitively you know uh, develop. So I, I'm I'm really. Um, you know, when we talk about teachers, they're one of the most thankless uh, professionals in the United States. Uh, and I really, you know, outside of the unions and all that stuff, I mean, people don't enter the profession of education for the money, right? Uh, so I have faith that these people will do their best to bring our children back on track. Uh, and I say our children as someone who doesn't have children, mm-hmm. um, because it, it, they are really important. Obviously, they're the future of what, what we're all going to be doing, you know, in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So um, I, I I have faith that we'll be able to get every, uh, most of the children back on track uh, in, in a really uh, a really good way. Nate, question to you. Uh, as it relates to curriculum development uh, in the wake of uh, the critical race theory, how has this affected textbooks in the United States and the learning devices that are used by teachers now? In other words, is this, is this, are those industries already taken over by uh, by uh, the critical race b- believers and uh, the woke folks? 
Oh, they absolutely are. They were one of the first ones to go, you know, decades ago. Uh, you've seen a widespread push for the implementation of the 1619 project in public schools everywhere from California to deep red states like Kansas and, and Tennessee. Uh, and Republicans in those deep red uh, legislatures are still, for the most part, asleep at the wheel, although they're starting to, to wake up. Uh, so this, again, this has been a, the, the coronavirus has not just been a pandemic, it has also been an opportunity for the most radical elements uh, in the left to launch a full broadside attack on our education system uh, and the, a variety of other cultural institutions as well. And you're seeing that with not only the implementation of the 1619 project and, and associated narratives in our public schools, but also teachers unions using this as a bargaining chip. Uh, in Los Angeles, teachers unions are, are their demands is that they are refusing to come back to teach in person until there's an implementation of critical race theory uh, more aggressively in the classroom. So it's, it's a really dark moment. And uh, Americans who care about trying to save our, our education system uh, have to wake up and have to start making this a priority. Kyle, would you agree that the image of the American teacher has been uh, significantly besmirched by some of these demands of unions throughout the country and that you are, when I say you, I mean teachers' unions, they're riling more people up and satisfying fewer? Well, I think the, the majority or just an individual will look at it individually. They look at their children's teachers, and that's who they think of when they think of teachers. I don't think they're looking at these uh, stories that are across the nation that happen. Um, and and t t even further into that is what's the research being done into those cases? Most people might read a headline. They actually probably won't even read the articles. They probably won't even know what the article is even talking about. Uh, so to answer your question, they look at their teachers that they have, their students' teachers, and for the majority, like uh, Derek was just mentioning, um, I feel like we're, we have a pretty good light right now. Uh, there have been moments where people have come out and said that either teachers are trying to take advantage of this moment, trying to defend their, you know, or, or their participation in the union to, fight, to say, I don't want to go to go to the classroom. Me personally though, and I'll hurry up and rub this up. I've been in the classroom since August. I've been with students since August, Monday through Thursday, since August, Friday, we were distance learning. Um, every student has the opportunity to be uh, online. And so I've, I've kind of mixed in all different uh, types of modalities here. And for the most part, uh, parents this year more than ever have reached out and just said, thank you guys for how much work you guys are putting into ensuring that my child doesn't fall too far behind. Last comment that I wanted to make here about this. We have though, to pause before your last sure. comment. We've got to go to a break and then we'll get the last comment. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Smart Talk Radio Network. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery, and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. 
Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us. So one part of uh, what has been promoted this evening that we've not talked about too much this evening is cancel culture. And I want to go back to Nate, our sort of historian on the subject. And uh, Nate, my question to you is, uh, when did the concept of cancel culture begin? And again, uh, it obviously, uh, it has a, a power of its own. Uh, how quickly did corporate America be forced to buy into it? Well, it seems like uh, the the r- rapidity with which corporate America has fallen to this has just been sort of mind boggling. I mean, we if you look at where big business was even four or five years ago versus where they are, hell, even one year ago or six months ago versus where they are now, it's just uh, two completely different worlds. Uh, and that is the result, again, of uh, an incentive structure, which makes them uh, cave to woke activists at uh, their, their, their quick, quickest demand. So culture has always had. But, how does, uh, but Nate, how does that happen? What, give us the mechanism of, you know, once, once something is said or something discovered, obviously they share it with someone else that gets on the Internet. I mean, how quickly does that develop into a plan to, to pressure the hell out of corporate uh, uh, HR departments? Well, look, it's because the left controls all of the power centers in American life. Uh, There is not one power center or cultural institution uh, in American society left that is majority conservative or is even broadly sympathetic to conservative demands. Maybe talk radio. Sorry? Maybe talk radio. Yeah, talk radio perhaps, but the media more broadly institutionally is very left-wing, as is the academy, uh, the bureaucracy in D.C., big business now, et cetera, uh, athletic leagues, obviously. So uh, when that happens – uh, the all of the power is on one side to punish dissent and enforce a particular ideological line. And if you're a, a risk-averse corporation, your incentive structure is try to try to avoid that at all costs. And uh, from the right, they don't really have any particular power to enforce a right-wing alternative to this. So if you're a corporation, you're not going to really care what the right thinks, uh, and you're always going to try to capitulate to the, the people in power who happen to be the left in this case. Isn't that the big story, maybe the takeaway from your comments this evening is that no one really cares about what conservatives believe. They don't think their buying power is terribly significant. They don't care about their religion. They don't care about their cultural values. They don't care about what car they drive, how they look, who they interface with. They're just, they're just unhip. That's and if right. you throw yeah, in there and- that, and if you throw in there that they're born again, Christian, living in Utah, forgive me, Kyle, it just doesn't matter. Nobody cares what people between California and New York and D.C., what they think about anything. These are the people that have been ignored, and this was this was the nerve that Donald Trump discovered, and that nerve is still being, uh, is still being you know, exercised now, even though Trump is gone for the moment. Right. Well, and it's even worse than it was uh, when when Trump tapped into it. And if you look at the realignment, the Republican voting base now is much more working class and the Democratic voting base is much more upper class uh, than it was even five years ago. So this is only becoming more of an incentive structure for companies when you look at the fact that rural working class Americans are really the ones who are the only ones who are the solid Republicans anymore. And uh, Biden beat out Trump um, from Wall Street donations by something like 10 to 1. 
Uh, so all of the money from 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 Wall Street, from the from big the big donor class is flowing into the Democratic Party. And the Republicans don't have anything except for working class voters uh, in, in the Midwest and in rural parts of uh, of other of other states. So again, the, but one the thing they're one thing they're fearful yeah. of one thing they're fearful of since Donald Trump did better with African American voters uh, than expected, even though it was a long way, uh, you know, a bad second place, but he still had quite a bit of an inroad is uh, one of the reasons why they're scared as hell of Senator Scott is they're worried that their black base might be uh, might be cut into. Eric? One of the remarkable things that has happened in American politics is if you go back 20, 30 years, um, African-American voters in the Democratic Party are the left wing of the party. And the party has moved to such a considerable extent that African-American voters were the people who got Joe Biden elected president over a much more left-wing candidate in Bernie Sanders. They've become the more conservative block of the party. It is an incredible story of the transformation of that party and where it has moved ideologically. And as Nate talked about, you're seeing that realignment on the Republican side. You're also seeing some realignments, of course, then happening on the Democratic side. These things will always move in some kind of tandem because, you know, the for people who were concerned, you know, five years ago when Trump got the nomination that, oh, the Republican Republican Party may cease to exist. In some sense, then also the Democratic Party ceases to exist because their reason for existing is to oppose the other. They'll reform themselves into some other kinds of coalitions. But it is just a remarkable story how over a relatively short period of time in American history and politics, where black voters started out on the Democratic in the Democratic Party and where they are now. But suburban voters, suburban Republican voters that have been have been fleeing the party during the Trump administration. They're um, they're elitist. They're elitist. They're not comfortable going to the bowling alley with Joe Sixpack. You're not going to see them shopping at the same stores for the most part. Well, for the and, most part, they... they don't want they they're, 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 they they view them as rude, crude, and socially unattractive. And it is and it is not just the extremes of that that showed up on January sixth to riot at the Capitol. It's a much broader group that includes a large chunk of the Donald Trump base. I think for the most part, they live in different communities. But and this is, uh, I think, where Nate and I may disagree on the coalitional realignment. I think the move to try to attract those working class voters at the almost complete expense of suburban voters is idiocy on the part of Republicans, and they need to rethink that strategy. When we come back, I want to get Nate's response to that and also everyone else's response. Uh, and we will continue with Nate Hockman and Eric, uh, Eric Cohn and also uh, Kyle Daniels and Derek Addis. I'm Bruce Dumont. Another full hour of Beyond the Beltway comes up, and we will talk a little bit about what happened last week in Washington.
For some, news is about their opinions. We believe the news should give you the facts without bias, so you can form your own. We believe in news, not talk. Facts, not opinions. News Nation is on every night at 7 p.m. on WGN America to give you the information you need. Everyone calls it the news, but we'll actually deliver on it seven nights a week in primetime. Find your local channel by going to WGNAmerica.com. News Nation. It's your news, your nation. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ag Council. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, We're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win... We all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont, back from Evanston, Illinois, hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. 1-800-723-8289. Kyle Daniels is with us. He's a high school teacher from Salt Lake City, Utah. Derek Addis is a marketing executive from Chicago, as is Eric Cohn, who also has a very strong, card-carrying, libertarian perspective. And also, Nate Hockman joins us. He is a conservative and a libertarian. And uh, you go to college in Colorado, but you're joining us tonight from your home state of Oregon, right? That's right. Uh, uh, not me... really a libertarian these days. Eric and I have gotten into it. <laughs> so you're more of a card-carrying conservative. That's right. Yeah. That's good. Nice to know you. Let me ask Likewise. you. And by the way, you were introduced to this program by by Eric, so that was uh, nice of him to reach across the political aisle. Uh, before we go back to all of our discussions, uh, I've got to ask you, Nate, what the hell is happening in the state of Oregon? <laughs> 
In general? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, uh, you know, our, our state politics have been a mess for a decade, but like a lot of places, the coronavirus has made uh, them significantly worse. We are uh, doing quite well in terms of uh, vaccinations uh, because, and we prioritize teachers. We let them go to the front of the line for vaccinations, but we're second to last in the country for school openings, which just goes to show how much our state legislature, which is a supermajority Democratic in, in both uh, the state house. What's and state with Senate, the rioting? What's with the rioting in Portland? And is it still going on? It is sporadically. Uh, it's uh, magically the media stopped covering it after uh, Joe Biden won the election. Um, but uh, it, it happens from time to time and it continues to happen. And mayor and uh, city council don't seem particularly interested in doing anything to stop it. Does the public not put any pressure on them or is the is it ho-hum to the general public in more in Portland now? Well, a lot of people move. They leave the state uh, if they're sort of upset with it or they live, uh, you know, in in gated communities outside of Portland where rioters can't get to them and continue to uh, vote Democratic. Right. Let's go to Joy. She's listening to us in Spokane, Washington on KXLY. Go ahead, Joy. Um, Well, my general comment, and I'm a lifelong Democrat, and, um, and so that will put a bias into my comments, but on many of these subjects, like looking at woke, wokeness and, and other ones, um, from my perspective, particularly from the far right, I think a lot of their messaging and a lot of their language seems to come from a place of hate and fear. And so I think that may be driving why corporations, you know, may be going in the woke direction versus the other. Um, but I look at, for example, the issue of transgender um, af- athletics. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's not just that this is an issue that may should be addressed locally. How can we, you know, look at this and make sure that um, kids who want to play in sports can play in sports, but it can still be as fair as possible. Instead, it's at a statewide process. It's saying, no, we're going to ban this. But then the language goes further, and it gives the impression that transgender people will be destroying the family structure in the United States forever. Um, will they be dro- will they, well, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this. Will they be destroying or affecting in any way, positively or negatively, intramural uh, athletics involving women? Does it change the way a female athlete can compete? um, You know, I I have a friend that I went to business school with, Joe Ivester, is very Mm -hmm. um, involved in this in Texas. She has a a transgender Mm -hmm. son which she wrote a wonderful book about. Mm -hmm. And she gave me some information about it. I live in Spokane, Washington. We, in fact, have had inclusive sports for 13 years in Washington, as have 14 or 15 other states, I think. And, in fact, it has not been an issue. Um, Women's scholarships have not yet been taken away. Um, And so I think, again, if it is an issue, I think it can be addressed at a local level where the issue may be prominent. But I think it's this big, huge response that, again, seems to be based on fear and hate. Um, This big response at a statewide level that really is not consistent with what the problem actually is. 
I spent two two um, trips, mission trips to Guatemala. I mean, you'd look at that country and the problems they face. I'm not for open borders. But again, if you look at the language that you hear from Republicans, everyone from Guatemala is um, a terrorist, a rapist, or a drug dealer. I have never no, felt I, more I don't welcome. Think, I don't, I, I, or, I, I, you know, I don't, Joy, so, you, you call frequently. I agree with you on many things. I, I, I think I don't agree with that assessment. But Eric Cohn wants to talk about the broader issue, I think, of uh, uh, transgenderism. Well, well, actually, no, something different that I find interesting in what yeah. Joy was saying is that that um, so many of these ideas being based out of hatred or fear. Um, first, we're all fallen human beings, and we all have things that we hate, sometimes rationally, sometimes irrationally. We all have things that we fear, sometimes rationally, sometimes irrationally. But primarily, as somebody who has worked a lot on the political right throughout my career and all of this, I've known a lot of people. There are some people who are bad actors, but for the most part, people are coming at this from a place of caring about wanting to make a better world for people. And there's this problem that was identified by social psychologists called political motive asymmetry, where we believe that we believe the things and have the politics that we do because we're good and we want to help people. But those people over there with other ideas, they're bad and they're evil and they want to destroy things. And in all but the most extreme of cases... It's just not true. And one of the things that has really hurt uh, us as a country, as we were talking earlier about the coalitional shifts within the Republican and Democrat parties, we've also had a lot of um, what's been called the big sort, where people have moved into places where they're surrounded by people who believe the same things that, that they do. As somebody who has been on the right and lives in the city of Chicago, if politics comes up in a conversation amongst, you know, school parents that I'm around, you know, there's an assumption that everybody agrees and it's always from the yes. left. And I'm hyper aware that I don't agree with it. But it would be the inverse in, I would assume, a rural community. Whereas, you know, I'm hyper aware that nobody agrees with me. There's an assumption there that everyone else does. And there's a lack of familiarity with people who just believe different things because of a lot of factors, some of which we can control, some of which we can't. But for the most part, I just think joy is fundamentally wrong. I don't think most people are acting out of a place of hatred or avarice. They do want to make things better. We just disagree on how. Kyle, my question to you, you will, you will mention that you, there was a transgender student in your classroom. Uh, how is that student uh, treated by the other students? Well, it's kind of actually follow up even what Eric was saying and, and speaking to what Joy was saying as well. Um, I think it's more under, underlying for sure. And it's interesting. I got to look into this article by Eric that he was talking about, but the students that I work with and my experiences with other teachers, they they do feel like the left is appealing to them more effectively than the right for whatever reason that is but they do appeal to them and it, it kind of just points out to that story that i told where that student made that comment however what i'm not seeing is maybe could there that are be by, by the way could, could that be up. kyle could that be because the left never tells them no um, yeah, I, I think you need a specific. Can you, can you give me a specific there and what you're inferring? I've got to go to a break right now. Yeah. Uh, well, a good example would be if someone wanted to, to move transgenderism as, a, as an issue, there isn't anybody in the Democratic Party that's going to stand up and say no to that. Nobody. I'll be back shortly. Right. I'll be back shortly. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. 
One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one -on -one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Wish you were here. Words we've often seen on postcards and letters from friends and family. Luckily, there's an entire state that whispers, wish you were here. Climbing my dunes, sailing on my breezes, walking along my beaches, and getting lost and found in my forests. This is a postcard from Michigan, where wishing you were here is the heart of pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Uh, we had our conversation with Joy from Spokane. So 1-800-723-8289 is our phone number if you want to give us a call. 1-800-723-8289. Nate, I want to go to you to pick up on something that Eric said before the break. And that was you have looked into uh, the evolving demographics and allegiances and, uh, uh, and coalitions uh, out there in the body politic, and uh, what have you found thus far? Well, we're in the midst of a political realignment. Uh, the the par two parties' coalitions are constantly realigning. Every election, there's a slightly different demographic makeup in both coalitions. But what we've seen over the course of the last few years is a is a really sort of radical, uh, expedited increase in the speed of which at which the realignment that was already happening happened. So you mm -hmm. have folks who are working class and don't have college degrees only have high school degrees or some college education moving rapidly into the Republican coalition. And you have college educated Republicans moving rapidly out of the Republican coalition into the Democratic coalition. So what what we what that culminated in, in in 2020 was a Republican Party that was more racially diverse than it had ever been, but was made up uh, primarily of, of folks without college degrees and a Democratic Party that was uh, whiter than it had ever been uh, and was uh, almost entirely dominated by uh, the the upper class, the well-educated, and then a mm -hmm. underclass of uh, primarily African-American and Hispanic voters. And where did the Hispanic and Asian voters go? Well, they're moving into the Republican Party. If you look at trends, the Democrats still win the majority of the, those votes uh, for the most part, at least in national elections. Uh, but if you look at states like Florida, South Texas, to a certain extent, Ohio and Pennsylvania, Hispanics in particular are really moving, uh, trending red in a real way. And it's going to have ramifications for, for national politics for the next decade, at least. As a, uh, as a Republican, uh, how do you assess the recent census news, which has been described generally by some commentators as a, a good move for Republicans. Uh, which, which census data specifically? The census data is insofar as uh, uh, the, which states are going to get more electoral right. votes and which ones will lose and, and uh, the power shifting continuing to shift uh, to the South and West. Right. Well, this is the material consequences of the blue state model of governance in action. Right. You have uh, California used to be a bastion of the middle class. Its middle class has completely cratered in the last two decades, and it is now the most unequal state in America, full stop. And the result is a mass exodus of people from places like California to red states and a diminished political power for blue states that have been pursuing these really destructive, toxic policies for people who are moving to, to make a, a better life elsewhere. So this is going to continue to happen until Democrats wake up and realize that what they're doing is destroying the middle class and destroying the lives of ordinary working Americans. Uh, but I wouldn't count on them waking up anytime soon. Uh, Kyle, didn't, uh, was Utah one of those uh, that picked up another seat? Kyle, you're muted. Here. 
Uh, no, actually, Utah was not one that, that did gain one. Uh, okay. Oregon gained one, actually. Okay. Um, but And then Texas, and then all the, the Rust Belt really lost a lot. Texas got a couple. Yeah. Uh, yeah. David from San Francisco joins us on line three. David, go ahead. Well, thanks, Bruce, and your guest. Thank you. you. Know, if you were to look back at 1776, and the idea that taxation with representation was the principle of America, then racism or discrimination, playing the religions against each other, playing men against women, playing, you know, divide-and-conquer schemes, are typically uh, a way of stealing the tax dollars. So I came from St. Louis, and in the 1960s, for example, there was such a bigoted city that if you were Lutheran and there, there, there were Catholics on the Board of Aldermen, uh, your streets might not get swept. Your sewers might not get cleaned or maintained. Your, uh, you know, the, every aspect of the infrastructure might be allowed to deteriorate just based upon religion, much less on race. And so I see that what the the game is, is divide and conquer. Uh, uh, bigots have figured out that they can steal tax dollars by pretentiousness, that their snobbery allows them to steal tax dollars from everybody. And ta- it's taxation with representation is not happening. And what's even worse, in 1914, the very year that the Federal Reserve was created, uh, that same Congress tricked America into limiting uh, the, uh, the size of Congress to 435 members instead of its expansion. And so now uh, a state like Montana that just gained a congressman, mm-hmm. so they now have two congressmen for a massive state that, uh, uh, that size, and they should have 36. Uh, 36 congressmen for the state of Montana instead of two. And so the idea that the workload on a congressman is now 700,000 instead of the original Constitution saying we would get new congressmen every 30,000 people, that means that regions can't get uh, actual representation and that one person has the massive authority to deny or to advance certain sections of town or sections of a whole state. Let's let, I want to let and, Eric, uh, hang on, just say, Eric wants to jump in and comment on some of the things you've said, but stay on the line, David, he's, go ahead. He's, he's hit on one of my odd political hobby horses, which is that the uh, lack of growth in the United States House of Representatives is ridiculous. The idea that the fire marshal declaring that this is the uh, maximum number of people that can be in the House of Representatives means that we have to keep it at 435 is preposterous, especially considering what we've learned over the last year, which is that you can have people joining these kinds of conversations. Um, you can be back in your district. You can be back in your state. There are ways of handling it that um, would make it possible. And I think people get poor representation as a result of it. I mean, you're less close to the people that you're actually representing when you're, you know, my congressman is Bobby Rush. I've never seen Bobby Rush in person. He, he represents 750,000 people in the city of Chicago. Um, one of the other fringe benefits of it is the larger that the house gets, the less the gerrymandering is going to be an issue because the smaller the districts get, the harder it will be to gerrymander them and to create things like Rahm Emanuel's former district here in Chicago, which looks like a big claw that's trying to, or a mouth that's trying to eat downtown Chicago. Um, I think this is one of the things that is almost completely impossible to make happen, which is why it's a, you know, 
bizarre political hobby horse of mine, but it would I think we would benefit a lot from having a larger House of Representat- Representatives. And it can be done. If you look at New Hampshire, there's an insane number of people in their House of Delegates, and they managed to make it work. So Nate, it's doable. Nate, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, no, I'm open to uh, to expanding the the House of Representatives. I've only read about it a little bit. It sounds like Eric knows about it more, but it's it's uh, it seems like one of those good government reforms that is completely in keeping uh, in line with the political philosophy of the founding and uh, isn't unconstitutional. In what any about the Supreme way. Court? I was about to ask that too. Yeah. What uh, about I, oh, expanding, the, expanding the Supreme, the Supreme Court? Court? No, sir, that's a that's a I think a, a, a conversation that is yeah. we can certainly. Well, it's have, not a representative body. Sure. I mean, that's that's the key point there. Is it's not a body that's supposed to be representative and was supposed to grow with the size of the population. Now, th- I think there is an argument to add more seats to the Supreme Court in the sense that it was supposed to add seats with all the different federal districts, yeah. uh, judicial districts. Um, but it, that's and completely were, within uh, Congress's realm to make should, that should choice. Should D.C. Have be a state? Uh, I think DC, we should have retrocession of D.C. back into Maryland, and they should get their representation from the member of Congress mm-hmm. that would be in that area in Maryland and the senators mm-hmm. from Maryland. Should Puerto Rico be a state? If they want to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Virgin Islands, uh, Marianas Islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And as a matter of fact, if you see the pharmaceutical industry in Puerto Rico, five of the biggest pharma industry or, or corporations are in Puerto Rico. They get basically slave wages mm-hmm. uh, for creating expensive pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's... It, and looking at the aftermath of those hurricanes in both Virgin Islands and uh, Puerto Rico, uh, they are not getting representation, and it's only going to make them angrier and angrier. Uh, and it, it, it's an insult to America. The idea that we, you know, I'm a big fan of Thomas Paine, and uh, he was uh, for expanding freedom throughout the world bringing down these evil kings and, and tyrants. And the idea that those evil kings and tyrants are now able to invest in America through corporations, uh, and now with uh, the corrupt Supreme Court's ruling Citizens United, they can now invest in, in uh, corruption in America uh, through secret donations to politicians. I mean, so, yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he's correct. Citizens United right, said that, uh, you know, corporations are people and and as people, they're they're allowed to. No, it did not say that. It definitely it said not, that. It does not say that. Go read yeah. the holding in Citizens so United. That is not the, the holding inference in Citizens from United. the ruling is that corporations. That is a doctrine that long predates all of that. So in, in the same. Let's go to Nate. So what, Let's go to Nate they, for a review. Yeah, they, Citizens, Citizens United never said corporations are people. That's a, a left-wing talking point that uh, if you actually read the opinion, it, they never say corporations are people. They say corporations have the same basic constitutional rights that everyone else does, which makes How does that sense. not mean uh, as everyone Derek, else? let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this question. When a group of people come together, should they have fewer constitutional rights than they do separately? The difference is that the people that you're saying are coming together as not the board of directors that choose the direction that the corporation votes in that's the difference right so if we had corporations pay any taxes Right, and, and so do I, if I get together with three of my friends, can't pay taxes. Do I individual people can pay taxes. Constitutional rights in doing so. If I, if me and my friend decide to, to start a business, mm-hmm. does that automatically mean that all, the entire bill of rights just gets sacrificed to the door? The no, but again, what I'm saying is the down my door. I don't no, again, but what anymore. I'm saying is the board of directors who make the the strategic decision making on the direction of a company more often than not do not survey the employees again stakeholders of that organization. So to take foreign donations, why should they or would they need to do that? Because but, but that, again, that, pla- have to do because that corporination doesn't exist without rights. those people. 
And so well, I, you know, I, I, it's, it goes back to well, an issue here in Utah. Utah's women having the right to vote. Women, that was the fear. That was the fear of giving women the right to vote to give a man a stronger vote. If the board, the board of directors or whoever is, is getting their money into politics, they're, they're getting rid of all that thought of the people below. So for you to sit here and say, why should they have the prerogative to not listen to the people who work for them? I mean, that's elitist. We've got to move Again, on. I'm not really sure. Oh, David, I don't, I David don't know. thank I don't you know. very much. David, David, thank yeah. you very Millions much. People you got across America worth. are building a life in recovery from addiction and mental illness, helping themselves and helping each other with friends, family, and community lending their strength and support. Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral for mental and substance use disorders, for you or someone you know, call 1-800-662-HELP. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Fourteen clubs. That's what they tell us a legal golf bag can hold. And while that leaves a little room for balls and tees, it doesn't leave room for much else. There's no room left for deadlines or conference calls. Not a single pocket to hold the stress of the day or the to-do list of tomorrow. Only 14 clubs. Pick out the right one and drive it right down the middle of Pure Michigan. Your golf trip begins at Michigan.org. Bruce Dumont back in uh, Chicago, Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us. Um, let me begin uh, just a quick question to you, uh, Nate, and then we're going to go to another caller. Uh, you mentioned that you're a student at Colorado College, but you reside in Oregon. And my question to you is, what is your major? What year are you in and what major do you have? Yeah, so I'm finishing up my senior year, Bruce, uh, at Colorado College virtually in Oregon, uh, and okay. I'm majoring in political science and, and minoring in journalism. Uh, so it's tragic that uh, senior year ended this way, but I think it, it's uh, I'm lucky that I'm not starting out college as a freshman right now. We would, uh, if we were to wave a magic wand and share it with you and your parents, where would you like to be in 10 years? What's, I mean, what's your goal? Do you have a goal in life at the moment? Uh, this is good, good practice for future job interviews. Uh, but I'm, I mean, a lot of my experience has been in conservative media, doing a lot of writing, reporting, uh, showing up on shows like this sometimes. Uh, so it's what I love to do. And well, you'll uh, be back, young man. You'll be back. I think you're hopefully, the first yes. college. Yeah, if I, do I well. think you're the first college student that has ever been on as an actual guest. We've had I'll callers, take it. but you'll be our correspondent from Portland. <laughs> Sounds so good. So look yeah, into that Antifa, uh... folks, and what the hell are they doing? <laughs> uh, let's go back yeah. to calls. Let's go to Ray, who's listening to us in the aforementioned state of California. Go ahead. Hi, Bruce. I just wanted to correct your guess on some things that were just said about Citizens United. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> regarding, uh, number one, it's two different issues uh, that were spoken of. Uh one, that corporations are people, uh, and then the uh, that money is speech, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for, and both your guests that were speaking on it are wrong, although the sentiments are correct. The corporations are people, lunacy, in my opinion, came out of a case in just after the Civil War called Southern Pacific Railroad versus Santa Clara County which was a Supreme Court case originated out of uh, California. And in that, the court said in dicta, not in the holding, but in dicta, which has no prejudice, uh, uh, 
stare decisis effect, okay? Mm-hmm. And that was hypothesized that corporations, whether or not they should have the same rights, civil rights, as citizens do, okay? That then was taken erroneously by courts after that as precedent, and that's what started that, oh, corporations are people, you know, which is the shorthand for it today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the money is speech came out of a case called Buckley v. Vallejo, I think was out of 75, that had to do with campaign finance reform after the Nixon years. And that was the case that essentially equated or started the ball rolling on money as speech. Citizens United combined the two of those, essentially. And, uh, and so it didn't say corporations are people, but it still played on the same erroneous, not holding, but dicta that's mm-hmm. been upheld as starry diseases. Um, and uh, that's all I wanted to point out. Where in California are you calling from, Ray? Uh, north of San Francisco Bay Area. I'm in a county called Solano. Okay. In Vallejo, which is uh, kind of in between Napa, Marin, Sonoma, is, and Contra Costa. Is the uh, attempt to uh, retire your governor prematurely, is that is that is that going to be successful in any way? <laughs> Let me tell you about Gavin Newsom. Okay. okay? <laughs> uh, I've, so I've had drinks with Gavin. I'm an, I'm an attorney. Okay. I've had drinks with him on a couple of occasions. Uh, I really like Gavin Newsom. He is a very fun, a very sharp guy. A lot of fun to be with. Very funny. And I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. Okay. Wait, was that, okay. you? Was that you that I saw in the picture of the French, French Laundry? laundry? French yeah. I was going to make the same joke. <laughs> drinks at French Laundry? Yeah. Is that, uh, is that where you guys had drinks? drinks? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. This was before. This was back when he was mayor of San Francisco. Oh, okay. uh, um, but, uh, no, he's a politician. I will say that, um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't fall in any box. I don't buy into the boxes for myself as far as right or left. Mm-hmm. Someone asks me, oh, what are you, a liberal or conservative? I ask him, what's the issue? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm liberal or fall that way on civil rights and such. Uh, but that includes the second amendment. Okay. Uh, things like that. So, but Gavin Newsom, he's a politician. Uh, I was not wild about him uh, being elected governor, mm-hmm. but I have to say that I have been pleasantly surprised by him being governor, mm-hmm. and that is mainly on the issue that he hasn't been as bad as he could be on the Second Amendment. Okay. Um, Let me now ask that's this. A, now, the, the other thing is... that's the, a very poor way yeah. to judge our yeah, political leaders. Not, oh, that, that, oh, they that, weren't as bad that's, as that's, I thought. Yeah, that's not exactly something I'm going to see on a bumper sticker. Uh, one last quick right. question, and I realize that there's many people who, who want to challenge and, and throw him out of office, but Caitlyn Jenner... Could she ever be taken seriously by any, anybody, or uh, is she going to be a uh, a sideshow in the in the in the campaign? I think she's going to be a sideshow in the campaign, and the reason for that 
is if she does get any kind of traction, I think that she'll be kept from getting real traction or getting very far in the race from that car accident she was in and mm-hmm. the preferential treatment she got. Right. I think that would kill her. Okay. Or, or you know, kill her run. Yeah, right. I don't yes. mean to, You'll you know run. what I mean. Right. One, last, but, uh, one last question. As how far did as you the, find, the recall, how, how did, I don't okay. think that it will be... Uh, I don't think that it will be successful. It's being painted as caused by his uh, kind of ineffective reaction to COVID and the shutdowns and everything else, although the the recall movement started before COVID hit. Um, Well, we'll keep, we got to, we got to move, we got to, we got to, we got to move on, right? But listen, thanks for calling a quick question, quick question on the reaction in the state. No, my other question of this is we got to, we got to say farewell right now, but thanks for calling in. Nice to hear from a Northern California this evening. Um, Let us go back to uh, Eric, because you said during the break a long time ago, you said that there were elements of the critical race theory that you uh, are amused by, interested in, not necessarily endorsing them. No, I, there are things within some of the articles of the 1619 Project specifically that I think are interesting, that were reviewed by historians, um, that weren't found to be as problematic as, say, Nicole Hannah-Jones' lead essay, that are worthy of conversation. I mean, the the, the idea um, that we should only talk about you know, either slavery from the founding or that we only talk about the Civil War and that nothing that happened prior to that has any relevance whatsoever is... Um, something that merits conversation at the right academic level. My problem with the 1619 Project is not that. My problem with the 1619 Project is that it is, one, historically problematic, as I've pointed out a couple of times. And this is from, you know, it was interesting how it was assailed a lot by socialist historians, Marxist historians, who said that this is just absolutely, completely, you know, you're getting it wrong here. But there are a lot of different historians who had issues with it. Um, that this is now being entered into the curriculum, especially at younger levels. And what fundamentally they're trying to say there is that uh, America is, is irredeemable, that the founding was completely false. Um, instead of teaching what I think is the more accurate version of it, which is there was a profound hypocrisy and an original sin that existed in the founding in that slavery existed while proclaiming that all men are created equal. But within that document, there was the path forward to rectify that problem. It ended up costing a civil war to rectify that problem. You look throughout world history. How do we get the pyramids? Slavery. Slavery has existed in societies going back hundreds, thousands of years. America's experience with it is profoundly evil in one sense in that it is a more racialized version of it than um, that you know people were essentially born to be slaves but also that our experience is unique we fought a war to get rid of it and we should talk about that in its entirety not just one idea that america is irredeemable it will always be racist that we can never move beyond or never improve on any of that i think that is what is being taught and i think that is what is poisonous Derek, your response? Yeah, no, I agree with that. And I think that's like my thing. Uh, and I'm not incredibly well versed on the project. I haven't read uh, through everything that was uh, written by the various uh, individuals that contributed. Um, but I think the idea of of, of ch- changing the conversation to broaden it to like I was saying during the break, you know, like uh, one of the most conservative and libertarian ideas or, lib- uh, you know, uh, is is the idea of liberty and right freedom of speech and 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 free thought and all this right? So it's kind of like when a lot of people are like 
talking about the 1619 or critical race theory being non-starters, like there's no discussion to be had. I think that's where we kind of lose like one of the fruits of humanity is the idea of the expansion of consciousness. And, and it's not like a revisionist history, but it's more of like, we need to talk about some things that a really large swath of individuals well, see, deem to be important to them. And I think that you're, you're, you know, sometimes we don't allow those voices to be heard, even if we don't agree with it, or, you know, maybe it's historically inaccurate. Well, let's talk through it, right? Instead of just having a shutter be closed and it be a non-starter. And to your point, I agree with you that, um, you know, maybe some of the nuts and bolts in there, like the whole, you know, the preservation of slavery, and that's why we fought the British, you know, that, you know, historically may be inaccurate. But the idea that before 1776, there were things that are remnants of today and contributed to the remnants of today. Um, I, I want to have that discussion. we got to yeah. pause. I'm Bruce Dumont back shortly from Evanston, Illinois. You're listening to Beyond the Beltway, coast to coast and border to border every Sunday night on the Smart Talk Radio Network. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Hergaris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. As parents, we want our children to grow up healthy and strong. That means helping teens take responsibility for their health as they become young adults. One way to do that is to make sure they have one-on-one time with their pediatrician. That helps them become comfortable talking about any health issue with their doctors and with you. So make sure to give your teen a voice. It's good for their health. For more on teen health, visit HealthyChildren.org. Along the way is where we find the unexpected. Along the way is where we take in the scenery and often where we have the most fun. Sure, along the way can be the place we stop to fill up or grab a bite to eat. But in Michigan, along the way becomes the place we've been longing for. Because enjoying the journey is always pure Michigan. Your trip begins at Michigan.org. Dumont back uh, for our our last segment of our broadcast this evening, and uh, uh, let's see, we want to go to uh, I want to go back to uh, Nate and uh, get get your assessment of uh, where the uh, where the Trump train is leading right now. Uh, I I have not asked you whether you're a big Trump supporter or not, uh, so your answer can probably lead the audience uh, down the right path for you. But uh, is is Donald Trump? Uh, he may be the odds-on favorite for the nomination, but has he got it locked up, and would that be good for the party? Well, if he ran again, he would he would win the primary, certainly. I, I think it's very unclear whether or not he's going to run again. He's making noises about it right now, but that could just be because he wants to keep people guessing. You know, he's fundamentally a performer at heart, and he likes to do those things. Uh, Trumpism, however, which I think it's there's debate over what it is, but it is a part of the broader realignment of the Republican Party and the conservative movement has Trump at its center. And it means a a different type of conservatism that has different priorities and a different view of policy than the sort of Paul Ryan era of conservatism is certainly the future of the party, regardless of whether or not Trump is going to be at the helm. You have a lot of people in power in the Republican Party who are much more interested in a policy agenda that looks a lot like the priorities of the Trump administration rather than the priorities of what like a Mitt Romney uh, administration would look like. Where is the where is the cultural stuff going to be coming in? Because it seems to me, you know, we talked earlier about just the difference between, let's say, the country. They used to be called country club Republicans or suburban Republicans, and then there were the dirty fingernail Republicans. 
Uh, as that right. cultural battle goes on, uh, who do you think would be most likely to emerge? Would it be Ron DeSantis, which is a name that the President uh, Trump has said himself uh, would be uh, an interesting choice? Yeah, well, Ron DeSantis looks really good right now. I'm a huge DeSantis fan, so I'm biased. But I mean, if mm -hmm. Trump doesn't win, I think DeSantis is easily the <laughs> unmitigated frontrunner here. Um, but look, culture, cultural issues are front and center uh, for the, a Republican Party that wants to try to rebuild the Trump coalition that won in 2016. The reason Trump won was because he put cultural issues front and center, whereas the Republican Party elites and the establishment had neglected a lot of those issues for decades. And the voters care about those issues a lot more than economic issues, right. frankly, and the elites didn't. So the cultural issues have to be an organizing principle for any Republican Party that wants to actually win. And uh, Ron DeSantis understands that fundamentally and has tapped into it as a governor of Florida. Kyle, there was a rally uh, meeting yesterday in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is in your neck of the woods. And uh, Mitt Romney got in there, Senator Romney got in there, and he was uh, treated uh, rather rudely with uh, a significant round of booze. What was your what was your reaction to uh, the hometown senator being treated like that? Well, it's the talk of the town. It speaks to what Nate is talking about. Uh, so they voted to censor him, and the vote was 7-11 to 7 That's how close it was. And, of course, this is in, about, this is in a state that absolutely adored Mitt Romney 10 years ago, right? Uh, so or as time has passed, yeah, like Nate was saying, people gravitated to those populist ideas that Trump was supporting. And it obviously still... Uh, permeates in our conversation today, even to the point to his face where they will boo him in front of the rest. The state uh, Republican chair did stand up and tell them to be respectful. And afterwards, he was able to give a speech. But uh, yeah, 7-Eleven to 708 amongst the, all delegates. So that means that the, the Mormon, the Mormonism base that he had is also split? Or was that uh, the majority? Was that the uh, his yeah. vote? Well, unbeknownst to you, probably unknowingly, the, there's a huge culture war right now in Utah amongst Mormons, just Mormons, yeah. between what is Mormon theology and how does that Mormon theology equate to their political standing. Uh, and the, you're seeing it right there. Half of them feel towards Mitt Romney's and the other half are feeling another way. Are they, so, yeah, it's, are, it's, a, it's a problem that's it's brought up at every dinner table across the state. Is it cultural issues? Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, so, such as things like that that we've been seeing where Mitt Romney would look towards being probably a little bit more towards the center in, in terms of social issues or immigration, um, things like that, where the other side are saying no. And uh, where does Mike Lee come down uh, within the Republican Trump. power structure in one, the state? One word, Trump. He's Trump. Um, and it's interesting, like that, that is an interesting point though, because like the, the conversations being had around Mike Lee is all negative. Uh, that people don't like him or that people are going to run up against him. Uh, lots of people are trying to, to bid for that, that seat in this, this next election. Why don't they like him? Because uh, of the Trump yeah. situation? Uh, the, the points that are being put out, put out there is it's all about nation, not Utah. So that's like pretty much everything that that's being said. Like, why are you concerning yourself with the border when we need to talk about ourselves right here in Utah? Like, if, if they would just make the connection and if he would just make the connection of what's going on with the border crisis with what's going on in Utah, then he'd probably be more favorable. But it's speaking strictly from a national national standpoint. Nate, is the that's is just, the border crisis uh, the number one hot button issue for Republicans as they head to 2022? 
Well, I don't know if it's the number one, but it's certainly up there. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the broadside with critical race theory in our schools, which uh, the, has the Biden administration has actively been cheerleading, um, is a big one that is going to bring a lot of the suburban voters who are conservative leading but flipped for Biden back into the Republican fold. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the general culture war issues, these are what's motivating voters in both party bases, but particularly in the Republican Party base. Um, the economics are obviously important, but it's these cultural issues, immigration, critical race theory, American citizenship, what it means to be an American, the 1619 Project, all of these things. That's what we're fighting over in our national politics. And uh, the Republican Party needs to wake up and figure out what time it is in America and actually get on board with that uh, rather than just doing tax cuts and deregulation every time they get into power. We are out of time. Thank you very much. Thank that you. was Nate Hockman, and he uh, joins us from uh Oregon, which is where he resides. Kyle Daniels is joining us from Salt Lake City, where he resides. And Derek Addis and Chris Eric, or, or Eric. Uh, uh, Eric Who's this Cohen. guy? They, jo- <laughs> they join us from the great state of Illinois, which is going to lose another member of Congress because everybody is getting the hell out of Illinois. <laughs> yeah. Our thanks to Connor McKnight for his assistance in the production of this program. I'm Bruce Dumont. Until next Sunday night, good night from Evanston, Illinois. What is hope? Hope to me was just that he would get to come home. I had no idea how hard it would be once he got back. I wish she'd stop drinking so much. She thinks it's helping, but it's not. I hope she sees that soon. I act like I don't care if he comes to my games, but I hope he does. I used to hope he'd find happiness again. Now I hope. Our marriage makes it. I hope Grandpa will get help. He thinks it's too late, but it's not. With everything that he's going through, I hope he sees a counselor. I just want my brother back. I hoped he'd get help. Stop hoping things would get better on their own. He told me to stop asking. I didn't. Then one day he asked for a ride. Hope is knowing there are other families just like yours that the veterans they love got help and recovered. Go to maketheconnection.net and turn hope into action. Matt always knew he wanted to be a doctor. That's why he makes the most of every day. To study before breakfast. To work hard. To do whatever was necessary to achieve his goal. He found an answer in the military. If you have a passion, a vision for your future in any field, todaysmilitary.com can be your path to a fulfilling career. You have a calling. We have an answer. Find your way at todaysmilitary.com. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, 
we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership.